Hey everybody, welcome back to the Vivid Word Podcast. In this episode, we are continuing a conversation on dialogue. We've been looking at core aspects of communication, this complicated, complicated process that we have for turning our abstract thoughts into words and having those words be interpreted by somebody else. And we call that process the communication cycle and dialogue is a huge aspect of that. So we've been fleshing that out over the course of this conversation. We've been looking at the limitations of human language. We've been looking at the stewardship of language in personal conversations. We covered those things in episodes one and two, and I definitely recommend checking those out if you haven't. And in this episode, we take that into written nonfiction dialogue and what it means to steward language well in the area of journalism, in the area of memoir, and uh, what journalistic integrity looks like. And we end up looking at honesty in writing. I mean, I think in writing, honesty is probably what I value more than anything in my own writing and when I read writing from others. And if you're writing memoir and there's something that's really contested or a fact that's really hard to parse out and to figure out what is true and what's not and you're really struggling with that like put it in your writing um tell your reader that and grapple grapple with that with them and make it public to some extent um because it's probably gonna enhance your story and make your story as close to the truth as possible because sometimes the truth is that lots of things are true at the same time um and you're just trying your best to work those things out as faithfully as you can the, the heart of it of like why this event happened which is an opinion what is not an opinion but why is an opinion and so highlighting that not like trying to shy away from it but like talking about it and dealing with it being honest about not knowing if you're being honest or not <laughs> it's it's sticky but i think it's really important work and it reminds your reader of the fact that they're dealing with real life um and the words that are on the page I think that can develop a really healthy relationship between the reader and the author. We hope you enjoy this episode. If you'd like to get resources or show notes from our previous episodes, you can do that at vividwordmedia.com. Okay, let's dive in. All right, here we are. So today we are talking about dialogue in written nonfiction. We've talked mostly about talking out loud to other people mm-hmm. in real time um, up until this point. And so obviously we know that dialogue is really important to human connection. Um, that's like one of the foundations that we've established um, between political debates, conversations on social media. Mm-hmm. Conversation makes up a lot of our lives. Um, there was a study I found, a University of Missouri study that says um, the average human's communication is spent talking for 30% of the time and listening 45% of the time. So basically dialogue in our daily lives makes up 75% of all of our communication. So just to reiterate the fact that conversation is really important Mm -hmm. and we're really dependent on it. Um, And so of course that's going to translate to the importance of dialogue in writing. I tend to think about fiction when I think about written dialogue. Um, I love reading dialogue and fiction. I usually have to keep myself from skipping between like descriptive sentences. If I'm like reading a conversation in a book, it is really hard for me to not to just like skim over the details and just see what people are saying. Yeah. I love dialogue Mm -hmm. uh, in fiction. I do the same thing. Sometimes I've, I don't even go back uh, and (laughs) read the descriptors. I just skip around to the different conversations. Um, it breaks it up usually you know you see line by line mm-hmm. so that makes it fun to read and then you get to have your whole cast of actors in your head like you get to really let them perform versus just being told about uh what you're supposed to be seeing right uh, yeah not that like descriptive prose is can be really nice mm-hmm. but it took me a while to appreciate that but i've always loved reading dialogue, dialogue. even from a young age it's always been really easy to grab onto mm-hmm. Yeah, I read something that said it's like the ultimate um, show don't tell 
tool because mm-hmm. it brings characterization to life in a way that like you were saying um descriptive prose is great but it's way more fun to read what a character is saying than to read like this character with red hair and freckles mm-hmm. felt this way about this um i would much rather just actually hear the words from her and then be able to kind of figure those details out as i go um <laughs> excuse me yeah but this isn't the fiction dialogue episode nope that one i'm i'm working on we're gonna do it later <laughs> right <laughs> Um, so as we have already demonstrated in our conversation, it is a lot easier to appreciate fiction dialogue than nonfiction. Um, at least in my experience, I feel like fiction lends itself more easily to natural dialogue. Um, and it's harder, at least in my opinion, to write nonfiction dialogue oftentimes than fiction. Um, yeah. So when we're talking about nonfiction dialogue, we're talking about like interviews or we're talking about... Yeah, yeah, like conversations in the past that are being Mm -hmm. written down for posterity or for a different form of communication. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. So, so in the context of writing, we usually think of when you say dialogue, we're usually thinking of fiction. When you're talking about a news article, you wouldn't necessarily call quotations in the news article dialogue, although at one point they were. Right. Yeah. So we're kind of using, we're lumping that into this conversation today okay. um, just so that we can get like a more full picture of how language takes shape in nonfiction writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've kind of, I tend to think of nonfiction in different categories. And I think that's mostly due to the way that my college professor taught nonfiction to me in a nonfiction class. Um, so like in the beginning of the semester, we learned a lot about journalism and investigative journalism and then we moved into we, like we kind of progressively got closer and closer to um, like spiritual autobiography memoir as mm-hmm. the semester went on. So we started out like kind of very objective, like really rooted in journalism and kind of made our way across the genre as the semester went on. Um, and so that's still how I tend to break up nonfiction in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to do that today. So we have um, journalism as our first category, um, the second personal essay and the third memoir. So these are all forms of written nonfiction, but the way that dialogue appears in these different styles, um, they're pretty different. So what Avery was saying is that like, I guess your first association, we talked about nonfiction Mm -hmm. dialogue was like direct quotes yeah, and like transcribed interview between two people. Mm -hmm. Um, So you could even say if our conversation today was transcribed, that could be nonfiction dialogue sure and in journalism it's pretty straightforward um so this is the most hard and fast fact-based form of written nonfiction we can get our hands on Mm -hmm. Uh, the reliability of journalism is in a constant state of debate we know but when it comes to quoting people it is pretty hard to stray from that if you're just transcribing a direct quote if you're listening to a recorded interview um of course you can pull quotes out of context Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're doing journalism, well, it's pretty straightforward. Like, how do you write down the words of other people? You put it in quotes and give a context and then you know what that person said. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I really appreciate written dialogue in journalism because I feel like it gives me more trust in the article or whatever it is that I'm reading. Say that you read an article about something that the president said, but the whole article is just descriptive and it's saying like, the president said this and this and this, and you never get a direct quote. I'm going to feel like I'm reading much more of an opinion based mm-hmm. news article than something that's actually reporting on an event or the speech of the leader of our country. Sure. Um, but if I, I, I feel like I don't have to go search out other sources quite as much to make like I don't have to do as much fact checking if I get a full direct quote like this is mm-hmm. what this president said in his speech. And you can tell context. Right. Uh, and even better than a speech direct quote would be like a an actual inter- full on interview back and forth where you can see context. You can see what questions set up the response and then how that response triggered another follow up question and then how someone responded to an entire train of thought. Right. Yeah. So that you would find yourself um, or you would find that form of dialogue i guess and more of like a narrative journalism piece or like an investigative journalism piece Um, yeah magazine article yeah 
um, where the author has kind of either done multiple interviews or like even lived yeah. a couple weeks alongside the people that they're reporting on yeah that kind of thing so you can really get the full context or like a feature i guess mm-hmm. like yeah. where it's like a long sit-down conversation right so if it's more of just like a quick one page breaking news article but you still need a direct quote if you're doing it well the author in that case should really i mean i guess either way but in this case in particular the author should be i guess like a vessel for delivering the words that were spoken in real time and shouldn't really have any personal say in the way that those words are conveyed in the writing. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is that in journalism, direct quotes are king. They're what give us like something mm-hmm. to ground ourselves in. For me, I guess they're kind of like they ground me in reality when I'm reading an article. I see a conversation that's actually has happened between two people and I feel like I can trust what's being said a little bit more, at least to some degree. Yeah. You can feel like we were, what we were talking about in our first episode, the, the communication that human beings do with each other through talking, through uh, even writing, through the usage of words. It's it's not a lossless system. There's a lot that gets lost in the in the cracks. And so the more you can set a scene and get a bunch of contextual cues, like situational contextual cues you can bring text alive a lot more. Uh, You can start being able to hear sort of what voice someone was responding to something in when you know the situation. Even I like when interviews, even if they're there, though they're in text uh, or written in prose, when they set the scene for the room that they're in, like, Oh, we were out at a restaurant or uh, we was an interview in the interviewees home and we were in the living room and then we move to the kitchen and we're talking about these things like you can set the scene a little bit more. So give it some life, give it some life. Yeah. And then it's a lot easier to parse out those nuances and pick up on things in between the lines. Yeah, for sure. So I guess in that way, I mean, it really does resemble the way that someone who's writing fiction wants to write their dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the actual pieces of conversation, conversation itself. But if you set the stage and don't have dialogue Setting the stage isn't going to mean much, but if you just give a big chunk of dialogue and you don't know the context, the dialogue isn't going to mean that much either. Um, So, I mean, they really work together Mm -hmm. best, and I think you need both in order to thrive. In journalism, I think it's tricky because providing those extra details isn't always a priority. Especially the state of journalism right now. At a certain time, you knew... Someone was going to be, if they were going to read your words, they were going to have something they were physical, they were holding in their hands. And that meant they set aside a certain amount of time to read that physical thing. And now, like, we don't really have that. It's kind of like the most cutting edge journalism that's most honest sometimes is like straight up Twitter journalism, where right. you're taking that direct quote and you're just putting it out there. Mm-hmm. And it is just about the the information that you can condense into the smallest package and get it out to as many people as possible mm-hmm. um, as quickly as possible, which Wh- Twitter is a great, <laughs> Twitter is a great example of that. <laughs> Twitter is a great example of that. Um, yeah. So I think, yeah, I guess there are kind of different facets of how you can choose to do direct quotes, dialogue, all that kind of stuff in, journalism itself um depending on what your goal is and what yeah. the medium is and then so journalism at its roots it's grounded in st- storytelling right it's it's non-fiction storytelling but it's Still specifically storytelling. it's storytelling and it's reporting and making the most relevant or what you feel is the most relevant things turning that into a story so that people can understand whatever it is that you're reporting. And so I guess there's a few different ways to do that. And there's also, I guess, a whole structure of how to make money through the profession of journalism. And that's that, that those business models have changed throughout the years, which has, I guess, kind of changed what the, the product looks like on the other end, like what news articles look like. Where do you put your quote a lot of times the headline is more important than the content of an article. Um, It's one of the things that annoys me a lot about uh, the state of just reporting 
today. That the article itself isn't. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't really have any content or they don't, the author doesn't expect it to even be read. Well, it's that, well, I guess those are kind of more effects, but the, it seems to me that the incentivizing reality is that you make money before people read your stuff. <laughs> hmm. Which can't be good for, yeah, it just it just can't be good. <laughs> <laughs> Period. Period. Especially when we're dealing with attention. Yeah. I guess that that's the currency of of uh, the entire field of journalism is mm. attention. Yeah, for sure. Well, good word. <laughs> okay. Do you have anything what, else uh, on journalism? Yeah. Um, I have some questions. All right. Like, where do you go for for your nonfiction? Because I don't, I don't read a ton. I, I, I read enough to get annoyed, but I, <laughs> I'm curious as to where you go for, for nonfiction or for journalism in particular. A, a journalism in particular. Okay. I, I would much rather listen to like a podcast, mm-hmm. um, or NPR on the radio, yeah. um, than sit down and read articles. I, I feel like I, I would rather at this point listen to a conversation of voices that I at least mm-hmm. am familiar with to some degree um, than trying to like parse through articles on four different websites to get the most complete picture of yeah. what's going on. Um, so I found myself, especially in the last few months, um, I mean, probably as a result of 2020 mm-hmm. as a whole um, gravitating towards I've used the skim shout out the skim. They're an email service. I guess they send you basically a recap of the news from the previous day every mm-hmm. morning. That's so why I get that in my inbox. Um, I've used that for multiple years. And so that they do have some long form articles and like quotes here and there, but it's way more of just a summary. If I'm going to read a news article, I'll probably try to go to NPR. I guess that's kind of my go-to at this point. Sure. And I love like the New York times, um, like long form investigative journalism pieces. Mm-hmm. Some of their stuff is, or a lot of their stuff is super well done. Even the way that it's like formatted for online reading is fascinating. Yeah. Um, it's like a whole experience. Mm-hmm. So I really enjoy that when I have the time to like go through and I really want to read more of like an investigative piece in depth. That's sure. where I'll go. That's, that's really interesting. I was, I was thinking the same thing yeah. as far as where do I go for news sources? I don't read articles anymore. It's just so much clickbait yeah. and you don't see that much clickbait or that sort of, structure hasn't gotten into the podcast world yet i mean it might but usually if someone titles something like for 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 people to even start listening to your podcast it has to be built off of reputation and like you've put out work and you're not gonna throw that all away just for some clicks because i mean that's not even how you make money people have to listen to your whole podcast or and leave reviews and buy your uh products or whatever so some accountability. Yeah. And I guess when I think about the podcasts for news or other content in general that I enjoy listening to, I mean, like you were saying, it it's rooted in story more so than most of the short clickbait articles that we find most of the time now online are. Like if you listen to a podcast, even if it's about like the presidential election or mm-hmm. COVID in 2021, whatever it is, you're still listening to real people talking and you feel like you've been brought into like a community and a relationship and some kind of larger story. I guess it feels more embodied and like grounded than just reading news articles does. And I mean, I think there's something really important in that. And at least for me, that's probably why I'm more drawn. Yeah. I think we use a different part of our brains when we speak and when we listen to somebody, even if they're processing the same information uh, we use a different part of our brains versus reading something or versus writing something. And I should do more research on that. But it just from my own personal experience, like I can listen to an audiobook version of something. I can listen to the audio version of a news article. I can listen to someone say the same thing and then read a transcript. And I feel like I'm functioning in different modes. And the listening is always more for me, like more empathetic. It's a lot easier for I can't I can't replace their tone with a tone that I'm inventing in my head. Yeah. Their tone is their tone versus when I'm reading something, you know, 
I can make a period sound angry <laughs> or in my head if I'm in a my my mood state affects what I read. And you don't really have those same tools for interpretation or the same freedom that you do in reading or writing mm-hmm. as you do in listening because you're just listening to things that are being said. You're not interpreting it for yourself quite as much, at least. Yeah. So Very interesting. Where you think uh, the future is trending the field of nonfiction when it comes to journalism before we move on to some other things. Um, I don't know here. Here are my feelings about, I guess, journalism in general. Uh huh. I do not like when people say that journalism is dead. Yeah. Um, and I feel like I hear that a lot, this like despair and woe over and uh, yes, there are problems, but Mm -hmm. when people talk about like, Oh yeah, the press is irrelevant. All it like, journalism is dead i think they're missing i don't know my thoughts aren't very collected on this but okay. i i guess it kind of takes away the value of journalism and people are not understanding why it's so important and there's such a a push for unbiased reporting mm-hmm. and news which obviously striving to be as unbiased as possible is super important but one of the accounts that i've been following recently on instagram and really loving is Sharon says so that's her Instagram handle Mm -hmm. and she is a high school government teacher and just does like education basically full-time on her Instagram and also does like online classes about government yeah so I think that her actual area of expertise is like Supreme Court law and policy so she knows a lot about judicial things Um, and so she's been super educating for me just providing the facts but like one or two Probably every other day she does like a question box and people just ask questions about anything, current Mm -hmm. events, um, government issues, questions about, you know, like I never understood this in the government Can you or in high school learning about government. Can you teach me? Um, And one of the things that she talks about, because people ask a lot of the time, like, where are your favorite unbiased news sources? Like, what Uh do you read? And her response is always there aren't unbiased news sources like yeah. you have to stop searching for those because you're not going to find it because no one is unbiased inherently sure um and we need to have an expectation of being able to trust journalism and being mm-hmm. able to trust that there's integrity and in what's being reported but we can't expect that reporting to be unbiased because gotcha. it's never going to be so that's not really an answer to your question, but those are kind of my feelings around it. I guess no. I guess more my feelings around the um, the conversation about journalism mm-hmm. because I think it's a conversation that needs to be had, but the way that it's approached in like a doom and gloom sure. perspective is not helpful. Yeah, no, I was just I was curious about your response because you ju- you were seeming very pro journalism, which is which is great. Yeah, I think. It was just refreshing. It was refreshing and unexpected. Mm. Don't really hear that so much. Yeah, and I'm I'm open to it, but I, I really I'm like really curious as to. I guess I don't know any like professional journalists, mm. but the professional journalists that I've just seen online, apart from people who have just started their own podcast, but the people that are still going at it with blogs mm-hmm. and have adapted to this sort of this um, internet business model. I've just it's frustrated me from a communicator perspective, Mm. seeing just how people word their headlines, how people choose to word their opening closing paragraphs. The the few articles that I've gone into and looked at, I've kind of retreated back into my podcasts. (laughs) Right. Uh, And and my especially long form podcasts. Uh, But what what you were just talking about, the, the, the Instagram account you're following made me think of i guess put my finger on one of my issues with modern journalism Mm -hmm. and that's to me when i hear journalism i think as a profession i think of professional storytellers professional nonfiction storytellers Mm -hmm. who are telling stories about different news thing like different current like current events yeah and in my own journalism classes that I've taken and whenever I like look around and see job postings for journalists or uh, they're looking for people who have the ability to hop into a place and become overnight experts Mm -hmm. or like make some calls, figure out some data 
and then then tell that to a bunch of people. Right. And so in the past 10, 15 years, what I've been seeing and the people I gravitate to more are people who are experts in their fields who have become better communicators versus professional communicators who are trying to become experts in a couple hours so they can write a story Interesting about it. Does that make sense? Yes. I think I'm trying to work out how that would work, like what that would look like in say that you're working for like, I don't know, CNN, mm-hmm. like how, I guess just how that works out in, in real time, because there are yeah. situations where like you're the only person available and you have to go report on this thing that's happening right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, how do you determine, I don't know. Do you, yeah, no, what I, I'm asking makes sense. I, it, yeah, it makes sense a little bit, <laughs> a, a little bit. So it, yeah, it, it feels like a question for, for like a few years ago, like 20, 30 mm-hmm. years, ago, like a pre-internet age where if say there was like a, a medical advance or, or say something more, there was more, something more urgent, like, like I don't want to keep using political examples, but like say something happened like legislatively. Right. And the world kind of should see a comment from somebody who's over there. Then there's a press conference. They gather, uh, you know, 30, 50 people in a room. They all uh, ask somebody who knows, usually not even like a senator, but like somebody, some press aide or something. And that's how the story like gets out. But it seems like you could just cut out the middleman. Cut out the middleman. And communicate like directly to people. I guess maybe it's it's time <laughs> like like yeah. experts don't have the time, but it seems I've seen a lot of people experts like making the time mm-hmm. to communicate their sides of of a story. And so I guess sometimes when I see nonfiction articles or like, you know, just just art news articles yeah. in general uh, of people reporting or even if they're not reporting on like a news event, they're just writing an opinion piece or entertainment meet entertainment news has like grown a a ton where it's like just people following the latest movies and television right. shows there's a whole culture and business behind that uh whole industry and so it seems like i'd be much more interested in an actual expert talking about something which i guess brings us back around to dialogue where the most interesting news articles are people who are going off and inter- directly interviewing those people yeah uh, if those people aren't like communicating themselves, haven't written their own articles or their own books, you're still getting it from the you're source. You're still getting it from the source. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's, which is really what you started the whole conversation yeah. off with in the, <laughs> in the first place is like hearing, how do you, how do you take information from the source and convey it and convey it in a, with high fidelity? Yeah. Mm. And I guess I'm not interested in people that aren't interested in doing that. <laughs> right. Which is, I guess, the most disappointing thing with not the field of journalism, I guess, but from a lot of things I've seen, the trends Mm -hmm. of journalism have been moving away from the idea of helping experts and conveying the stories and messages of experts with high fidelity. And so now you're saying that it's more... um, I guess they realize they could could still get people to read articles if they don't do that. (laughs) Right. And so... They're reporting with less knowledge, less uh, information from the source, mm-hmm. probably more speculation. Mm. I guess just I don't want to pile on, but like for the past year mm-hmm. of coronavirus things, you just, you just Google coronavirus and the first like 10 articles, you'll kind of see what I'm talking about. Those 10 articles aren't written by anyone from the who, like actual World Health Organization people. Right. It's just people grabbing like a snippet. And, and then everyone talking about and then it. talking about it for yeah. uh, you know seven hundred words, mm-hmm. only to then have to change, mm-hmm. like oh we reported on this, but then we were corrected. Yeah, but if you had, I mean, we were talking earlier about attention and time and how what's valued most right now is just getting the news out, mm-hmm. and if you have to go back and make corrections later, it's like well that's just going to happen. That's kind of I guess yeah. that's kind of the attitude that I've seen. Like they're rather be strongly right than weakly wrong right (laughs) (laughs) and i think that's all wrapped up in just vying for attention wanting to be the first person to report on the breaking story even if you don't have the quality story there yet it seems like most places would rather just have a story to give even if they haven't consulted the people who really 
need to be telling the story yeah itself yeah so i don't mm. want to talk in hypotheticals of like ah Journalism. things that uh, annoy me <laughs> um it's i think we, we can talk in about trends mm-hmm. but uh at a certain point that's gonna not be super productive so let's talk about how we can get to that ideal that mm. we talked about of finding the person who knows the most <laughs> Or maybe not the most, but who who has a worthwhile story to tell and has the experience and expertise to back it up. Yeah. And, and I mean, then figuring out how to make that come alive mm-hmm. for people. That's where gatekeepers are super important. So finding, I mean, it's exactly what you were saying. You have to find the person who holds the keys to the kingdom, in essence, mm-hmm. um, on a given topic that you are reporting on Mm -hmm. um, because your story isn't really going to be worth anything um, or it's not going to be worth much if you don't have access to those gatekeepers, to the people who not only know, like you can find plenty of people to talk to about COVID, Mm -hmm. but if you can get access to the person who really has not only authority on the particular subject that you're talking about, but also a unique perspective and Mm -hmm. more information that they're not going to just share with everyone off the cuff. Um, So I think that's where, like you were saying, interviews are super important and really crucial because it's, I mean, it's kind of like a treasure hunt trying to find the right people to talk to. And you're going to have to talk to a lot of people just to get on the little path to find the right Mm -hmm. person Um, because there's not a big sign that someone's holding up saying like, I'm the gatekeeper. I'm the person you're looking for. Um, That's something that as a reporter, you have to figure out kind of as you go along. So I guess that's one of the things or one of the ways to get back to really reporting from the perspective of an expert is focusing on finding the right people to talk to, not just someone to talk to um, or someone to get information from. Yeah. Uh, Another interesting thing that's, I guess, is an interesting trend where everyone's a everyone can be a journalist. At a certain point now, we're like the, the the bar for you don't have to have like a BA in journalism yeah. or anything. And honestly, like that could hold you back <laughs> yeah. because all you really need to do is know how to find that right person mm. and then know how to tell a story about and telling a story, meaning just like put information in a linear sort of way so that people can interpret it and understand and yeah. you know, get the picture, get yeah. the scene. So that the the democratization of the field mm. of journalism is good and bad. Yeah. <laughs> it means that anybody can start a blog and start reporting. And it also means anyone can start a blog and start reporting. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and depending on who it is or what your perspective mm-hmm. on that is, like you said, it can be really good and really bad. Yeah. So you would think that like it would shake itself out. And the world, the information market will make the best rise to the mm-hmm. top, which is debatable <laughs> Yeah, whether I or not that's happened. My thought when you were, because I agree that anyone can become a journalist per se, mm-hmm. but I guess, and maybe I'm thinking of it like too traditionally and the reality isn't this way. Mm-hmm. But I guess at the end of the day, my thought is like, well, you can be a journalist a journalist on your own but if you're not if your story's not being put out by one of the big names mm-hmm. you're not going to have like you're you're not going to have the same impact by any means that yeah. someone working for the New York Times or Fox News or CNN is going to have yeah um, maybe i mean joe rogan though yeah. <laughs> that that's where i was saying i think part of that just has to do with the voices that i listen to sure like i know that i'm going to get news from these places and so that's where i'm going to look i guess i don't tend to branch out as much as a lot of people do at this point i i do i respect the new york times and i think part of their success is working with independent journalism and not just have like uh i think they have i don't know what number but they have a certain amount of like on staff reporters reporters right but some of the best articles that i've read from them have been people that don't like work for the new york times right they're outside writers and then you know when they win a pulitzer for it the new york times has another pulitzer prize winning 
article, mm-hmm. whatever, on their to their Belt. name. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they're more of like a curation center. Hmm. And so uh, they end up with the really, really good stuff um, pretty consistently. Yeah. Yeah. Lately, I mean, I think they've kind of fallen into the same thing with we, we just had an election year and there's been a lot of coronavirus stuff. So like on their day to day, they seem to be on level with all the other major news sources. But it just seems like every once in a while, uh, a couple times a decade, they somebody writes something that wins some prizes. Yeah. And sure. then that keeps their brand, you know, strong. Yeah. What else? What else we got? All right. Well, you ready to move on from journalism? Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. So circling back to dialogue, we kind of took a deep dive into journalism, which was good, but we're going to talk now about personal essay. The personal essay as a form of nonfiction is probably the most like exploratory form of nonfiction writing that you're going to find. I love this genre because it's a great way to for an author to be able to take her personal interests and turn it into something that is accessible for everyone so like one of my favorite personal essays is consider the lobster by david foster wallace okay and the whole piece is just about or it it focuses on the main lobster festival that so he takes this really popular well-known event um Mm -hmm. And talks about it really broadly and then kind of pairs it down slower and slower or like smaller and smaller and smaller until at the end of the article, you're left with like all these existential questions about life and suffering Mm -hmm. and um, like the ethics of eating lobster and consuming lobster. And Mm. um, but it's not coming from a like an empirical unbiased perspective. It's coming from his perspective as the author. So I guess when reading personal essay, I tend to experience it kind of like I'm in dialogue with the author himself. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to find a ton of written dialogue necessarily unless it's used like for like the purpose of an excerpt within the story. Um, yeah. So it's not like you're reading a bunch of dialogue, but if the author wants to make a point, they might use an example that has dialogue in it. Mm-hmm. Um but a personal essay is going to just be a lot more like still storytelling, but it's really just kind of working through your own thoughts about something and packaging it in a way that is going to be interesting to other people to read. So tell me about Mr. Montaigne. According to Wikipedia, we're just going straight to Wikipedia today. Um, he, it says he was one of the most significant philosophers of the French Renaissance known for popularizing the essay as a literary genre. So he, he basically created the essay. Yeah. And it looks like an essay, why he called it an essay is because it means an attempt. Right. So it's really a process of working out your thoughts about something on paper. Huh. Um, which like you were saying, that's not how most people think of it now. No. Um, But I guess when I, my definition of personal essay falls in line with like what Montaigne was doing at the very beginning. Okay. So it's much less of like, here's a topic right on it. Like give me some information about it. Yeah. Um, Okay. So back to the David Foster Wallace example, he was most likely commissioned to write that piece. Sure. So he was given a topic, but instead of saying like the main lobster festival happens on this Uh month of every year and this many people come, like it's much less about spitting back facts and he and more about um, looking at a topic and then attempting to like process it and uncover your thoughts and um, I don't want to say feelings because it's not like a a journal entry. Um, no, but it's like if if we 
you know, we, we, we write to think it's right. just working something out on the on, page. Yeah. And if it's going to, if you're doing that, you know, for an audience, I think that's kind of what sets it apart from just like writing something down in a journal. Yeah. Um, well, it's the, it's the last thing you'd expect to have a rubric crafted around it, you know, right. <laughs> like it's okay to, yeah, it makes sense to like prepare it for an audience. That makes sense. Right. You know, you're going to edit it a bit. Um, when you think of your audience and how they're going to read it, but to craft a rubric and say like you have to have this many sentences, right? You have to have <laughs> uh, it has to be like follow this topic, like put your strongest argument first, and all like that's. I mean, it feels like there should be other words that we use for something like that, right? Like a paper, uh-huh. <laughs> um, a report, yeah. But I think essay has become way more popular as just kind of a blanket term where really there are a lot of different forms of an essay that you can write yeah i might need to go research <laughs> how how we got this word yeah and how it became what it is now you know yeah. somewhere off chat i think maybe it's because i mean so many prolific authors used it so much to work out their own thoughts uh and it just so happened to be like result in really beautiful like academically respected products right that uh it was kind of it just be, became the model. It got, yeah, yeah it got a really good you know uh just associated with smart people doing smart things and so teachers were like yep we're gonna Put write some school. essays <laughs> yeah um so i that's like your reaction to my definition is as surprising to me as my definition was to you because i'm realizing as we record this that i mean so much of the way that i think about nonfiction in particular because that's what I studied in college mm -hmm. is just so informed by the way that it was all presented to me yeah in college um so like I guess I was assigned essays to write but if we if I was writing what we would call like an essay in high school or middle school mm -hmm. in college we would call it like just a paper um okay. or there would be a more specific term for it yeah and then in my English classes if we talked about an essay it was a re reference to like Montaigne or writing a personal essay or like reading okay. personal essays um, written by authors that we were studying, that kind of thing. So I guess I've kind of forgotten the old definition that I had of it and I've adapted yeah. it more. Um, also, my senior thesis was a personal essay. Yeah. That was the form that I used. And so that's like very grounded in my mind, mm -hmm. um, like how to write that and what that genre is. So did you guys have rubrics for grading your your personal essays? You know, I'm trying to remember. There was only one class that I really wrote personal essays for. It was this nonfiction class. Uh -huh. um, and if we had rubrics, they weren't as important as just kind of tending to the things that we had learned in class. I feel like a lot of my professors had rubrics. I didn't always rely on them and it wasn't a huge deal if I did or not. Mm -hmm. um, especially in that nonfiction class, it was way more about like just the the tenets of what we were learning. Yeah. And the class as a whole and less like this is how you write a personal essay. Um, I think like the content that we were given served as a rubric for us. And it wasn't necessarily that we were trying to fit our work into a form um, that we were given mm -hmm. for a specific assignment. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, it sounds great. It sounds very different. It was mm -hmm. a small school. Yeah. Thousand yeah. students. Okay. Actually less than that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you had a little mountain paradise there. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> Um, and I forget how different my classes were from a lot of schools, at least as far as I understand. And because my classes were so small, like that nonfiction class probably had like 15 people mm. in it, maybe 20. And that was like a bigger yeah. class size um, for my school. And so even the grading was a lot more tailored. Sure. Um, which is probably why we didn't have to rely on rubric rubrics as much mm -hmm. because it would be more of like a. A conversation and a back and forth with your professor rather than like as long as you hit these points you're going to get an a um, mm -hmm. yeah cool so so what's like a modern example of the personal essay that you'd say is like really popular in the i the zeitgeist right now is there one or is it like a, a forgotten art i don't know i i would not say it's a forgotten art um i think you're not going to find like bloggers saying like this is a personal essay but i think in a lot of Anne lamott's writings could be considered personal essay i don't know if you're familiar with her um but one of her books that i've 
just finished reading recently. Um, it's called Small Victories, Small Miracles. Mm-hmm. We'll leave that in the show notes because okay. I can't remember the exact name, but it's like a lot of her books, a collection of essays. And I mean, they really take more of like a memoir autobiographical form. Yeah. But I think you could call her work essays for sure, because mm-hmm. most of her chapters are short, um, kind of like self-contained pieces that are like in this book in particular have been made into a book. Yeah. Um, even though they're yeah. not necessarily connected, they still tell a story um, mm-hmm. yeah. throughout the course of the book. A lot of books I have you know, on my shelf. Right. Are collections of essays like Lewis. Right. wrote a ton of personal essays mm-hmm. and then they got collected into i think even mere christianity was like right just a collection of essays yeah. and speeches and mm-hmm. different things so uh and even modern time like uh love me some neil gaiman and yeah. he he has like a a speech that he gave as like a like a uh, graduating class and I forget what they called that, like an address to the graduating right. class. And that was made into. Yeah, into an essay. An and essay. he won like a Pulitzer for his mm. speech that he gave. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think they're they're definitely there and we don't. So some speeches could be personal essays if you wrote them out. Right. I think we don't realize that that's what we're reading a lot of the time mm-hmm. because kind of like we talked about, the definitions are kind of obscure. There's not um, like a form that like this fits into a, a personal essay versus some other freeform piece you know there probably is but off the top of my head i don't think okay. i can give you the like this is what makes a personal essay yeah i guess in my experience or the way that i would define it it's a little bit more loose yeah so that's something that i'll need to revisit also okay well i mean that's cool i yeah you're kind of reminding me that those sorts of things in my in my mind like there is a little category for it there's a drawer i'm opening right. but it's mostly full of stuff from the 40s hmm uh, of like philosophers from the 40s who like oh yeah, yeah i guess they did call their stuff essays essays yeah i haven't I guess read that drawer a of... is a lot bigger yeah. <laughs> in my mind <laughs> yeah um cool well and yeah i guess i already kind of said in a personal essay dialogue is going to be more used like anecdotal um to provide some more context like we talked about dialogue mm-hmm. usually provides context and grounding um and even though you're not really writing an essay often about a conversation that you had with someone Mm. um you could but most of the time it's just like a broad topic and you're writing about that but dialogue can be found in that not quite as common as like journalism or memoir which is our last category and this is where dialogue gets tricky um because we get into the weeds of truth telling in nonfiction, um and how to write honestly yeah but when you're writing memoir autobiography whatever is Um, memoir always personal like an autobiography yeah okay memoir is different from autobiography in that usually it deals with a small event or period of your life um so like i was going to try to define like surprised by joy since we're talking about people writing in the 40s so like c.s lewis i actually haven't read surprised by joy which makes me sad and i need to maybe i'll take it (laughs) um off your bookshelf but he is writing not about his entire life mm-hmm. but like a a facet of something that has affected his life and yeah, from like what i understand he talks a, monumental a lot about moment. his childhood yes and so that is memoir more so than autobiography because he's not writing like this is everything that has happened in my life but he takes like a central theme or mm. event and crafts his whole story around that um because speaking from experience and what i've been taught if you try to write a memoir about your whole life you're going to fail. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense because yeah. knowing what we know about story and how story is change. And it's not just like a series of events. Like story is how did this one thing we've established that it's like this. And then this thing happened or maybe this thing didn't happen. Like something happened and now it's like this and it's changed. Right. And of course that happens over the course of your entire life. But especially if you're the one writing about it and you're trying to make it like detailed and emotional it would be incredibly taxing to try to do that in a narrative form yeah and it's it's like a hinge where like like there's gonna be a bunch of different pivot moments throughout your entire life and if you try to write it all out uh without condensing some parts of it Mm -hmm. to like some a smooth arc yeah um you kind of just have this like floppy thing with a bunch of hinges like oh my gosh (laughs) he's changed so much And it's, um, it's ambitious. Right. And it's usually so much more effective to take one hinge and mm-hmm. really zoom in on it um, because you're going to 
as I guess like counterproductive as it sounds um, or counterintuitive, you're going to connect with the most people, the more specific that you get in your writing and the more personal that you are rather than just saying like, well, this is my own life. Nobody's going to understand or care about it. Mm -hmm. Even if it's your own life more, you're going to get a broader audience, the more specific you get because you're more interesting, the more detailed you get about your own life in most cases. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So the words are obvious memoir and memory. Mm -hmm. They're very connected. And even just when I think about if I were to write on some point in my life, any point that I would choose, any pivot moment like you were talking about, there are specific conversations that come to mind in every instance that I've had a pivot in my life um, that would be crucial to tell that story accurately. But I also know that my memory Mm -hmm. is not infallible um, and the accuracy of my memory isn't something that I can necessarily depend on. But in order to have an accurate story, I have to provide quotes and recount the conversations that I remember having. So let's see. I I asked some authors in a group that I'm a part of, a writing group that I'm a part of, how they feel about reading um, nonfiction dialogue, especially in mem- memoir. Then I got a pretty encouraging unified response. Most people said that the idea of intent is what is most important when it comes to um, writing memoir mm. because like if you're reading memoir there is probably going to be an understanding going into it that you're writing something that came from someone else's memory mm-hmm. it's not like when you were a kid and something piv- like pivotal happened you're recording it all or writing every word down in a conversation yeah. um but that doesn't mean that the dialogue isn't important or not worth telling so others said that they struggled with not reading direct quotes because it made the writing feel less connected to the reality of the subject at hand, which was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but the general consensus that we kind of came to in our conversation was like the most important thing is having established trust between the author and the reader. Because if I'm reading a memoir and I feel like my narrator is untrustworthy, I'm not going to appreciate the quotes that are provided or the conversation that's given because I know like I'm not going to trust their memory as much or their faithfulness to the story. Yeah. But if I'm reading words from someone and I know that their intent is to tell, even if it's their version of the story, their intent is mm-hmm. to tell it as close to the truth as possible. I'm going to really enjoy reading that dialogue because it gives life to the story, even though I know that the quotes aren't word for word. Yeah. It, it goes back to like the idea of uh, pursuing truth mm-hmm. and how truth is not necessarily synonymous with inerrancy, especially when you talk about art, like, yeah, and a memoir or any sort of writing, like, is art. It's the art of, like, we've talked about before, taking those abstract things and translating those into thoughts and taking those thoughts and turning them into ideas and those ideas package them into words. And that whole process is an art. Yeah. It's something that we use to capture meaning. Uh, the phenomenon of meaning in our world and we take and and put and translate that phenomenon of meaning in our world into uh, aesthetics and the aesthetics of language is definitely a thing we'll talk more about that. that's a whole other podcast <laughs> that we'll talk more about but the, the whole thing is like you can have art that's true but two people can dr- do the same painting with the same bowl of fruit in completely different art styles and, and like it's it's still be true right Yeah, so much of art is repackaging. When you're writing something down, you're repackaging the way that you remembered it or the way that you remember seeing something or the Mm -hmm. conversation that you had with someone. Trauma can affect your memory. I mean, a million different things can affect the way that you remember certain events. Um, So, I mean, when you are writing memoir, it is important to fact check yourself as much as possible. Um, Yeah. Have, like, go back and talk to the person that you had that conversation with if you're able to and get their perspective see if they remember the words that were said differently um, and then try from there to compile something that's as close to the truth as possible. Depending on who you ask, depending on which author you ask, they're probably going to have different ideas on how far do you go to check yourself on your own truth? Mm -hmm. Is it enough to just go with your truth? Just write it like you feel it and let that be your truth in the moment And how much do you hold yourself accountable to that? And how much should you hold yourself accountable to that? And I think Mm -hmm. there are definitely people 
that have written books, written memoirs, written things that have been on one side of a spectrum and then all the way to the other side of the spectrum. Right. So. Yeah. While you were talking, I was looking up um, Mm -hmm. a book called The Lifespan of a Fact. Have you heard of it? It's also a play. That's interesting. I I have not heard of it. It is a book co-written by John Degata and Jim Fingal. Okay. Um, it was published in t- 2012. Um, Degata is an author and Fingal was his editor. And he wrote an essay called What Happens There. Um, and so this book takes John's or Degata's writing and Fingal's notes on his writing mm-hmm. and basically shows their process of it oh. shows the editing process. Yeah. Heart of Darkness and Apocalypse Now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so... Sorry, I'm reading real quick about it. So it basically, it says the resulting document ultimately took the form of a book that combines the text of the essay and the fact checking details. So it has, it features a discussion of the intentional and unintentional use of inaccuracies mm-hmm. in the creation of Degada's essay. So I think that really deals with what we're talking yeah. about here, how as an author, you can consciously or subconsciously include inaccuracies in your writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really important to determine like, okay, this is false. I fact checked it. Was this intentional or not? Yeah. Because we want to keep your voice in the story. We mm-hmm. want you, like you were saying, to kind of determine what your measure of truth is going to be as you're writing this. Because yeah. it's not just an article of facts. It's a perspective. It's an opinion. But where do you draw the line between knowingly putting something that is not factual in your work? Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you determine what's okay and what's not in a situation like that? where you want to represent your own perspective. But if you know the truth, how do you reconcile those two things? Yeah. Um, you gotta so, get creative sometimes. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me of writer director in Hollywood, Adam McKay. Hmm. I don't know if you've, uh, he did like Anchorman. Okay. Uh, a lot of his work, some important stuff, some, some important stuff. He also yeah. did the, the big short and okay. vice. And he, he does a lot of, you could call them historical drama comedies. Hmm. Are, is like his genre of that he writes the best in and specifically in the big short which is supposed to be this it's a like it's a biographical drama of the housing market collapsing mm. and and there's these th- scenes that are supposed to be based off of real life scenes and then the characters will sometimes just like break the fourth wall and look at the camera and be like okay these guys didn't meet in this what? lobby <laughs> this is just a, you know they actually met over here but right. we're condensing this timeline because we're trying to tell a story right and then they'll go back and keep doing this scene and they'll do like these breaks because there's got to be a lot of financial information that you have to have the audience know so they understand what's going on so they'll just have like random celebrities just walk in as themselves and explain what's going on and then like leave (laughs) and then keep going with the movie gosh it's so it's 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 a really interesting way to like approach telling this story Mm. and highlighting the parts that you're changing the factual inaccuracies but in a way that highlights like okay some of these things these details are wrong we're telling the story but the the heart of it of like why this event happened which is an opinion of like the why what is not an opinion but why is an opinion yeah and so highlighting that not like trying to shy away from it but like talking about talking about it and dealing with it yeah and i think exposing those i mean i think in writing Honesty is probably what I value more than anything in my own writing and when I read mm-hmm. writing from others. And yeah, I mean, I think if you're writing memoir and there's something that's really contested or a fact that's really hard to parse out and to figure out what is true and what's not, and you're really struggling with that, like put it in your writing. Um, yeah. Tell your reader that and grapple, yeah, grapple with that with them and make it public to some extent um, because it's probably going to enhance your story and make your story as close to the truth as possible because sometimes the truth is that lots of things are true at the same time mm-hmm. um and you're just trying your best to work those things out as faithfully as you can yeah so that's the advice you would give somebody working on it is memoir mm-hmm. just honesty yeah and and yeah, being honest about yeah transparency being honest about not knowing if you're being honest or not yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's it's sticky, but I think it's really important work. And it reminds your reader of the fact that they're dealing with real life um, mm-hmm. and the words that are on the page. I think that can develop a really healthy relationship between the reader and the author. We'll have to talk more about like writing as a discovery process. Mm-hmm. 
a lot of people just approach it as if it's a destination. I'm trying to get from here to here. Right. It's not that linear. But it's not that <laughs> linear. No, no. It's like you can find out what you're writing while you're writing. Right. And then it's up to you to be brave enough to like embrace that, what you found. For sure. Thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this discussion and would like to hear more, consider leaving us a review. It helps us create better content and it helps more people to find that better content. You can find show notes and other resources by going to vividwordmedia.com and make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast app to never miss an episode. If you've got a question, an idea, or you'd just like to say hi, you can shoot us an email at vividwordmedia at gmail.com or stop by the Vivid Word Facebook page. Vivid Word is a self-publishing service working to get your book idea read, seen, and heard. Till next time. Just words, well, they're just words.